Today is our second Sunday in this new phase of regathering. For as quickly as everything shut down, it feels like we're slowly coming back together. In the spring of 2020, when the bishop asked us to not meet together in person, I thought that we would pause for a short time, get policies in place, and then be back together where we when pick up where we left off before Easter. Also in the spring of 2020, I thought um, I was super, super sick, scary sick. There was this one night when my breathing was so labored that my husband and I sat on the couch watching TV, both scared and wondering whether it was time to go to the hospital, but also knowing that going to the hospital risked contracting COVID if I didn't already have it. Antibiotics, three courses of steroids and multiple inhalers got me through two months of acute illness. And I still don't know if I had COVID because back then they were only testing first responders. When Bishop, when Bishop Michael announced that we weren't going to be able to do Easter together, I cried. I couldn't imagine the great joy of the day of resurrection without meeting with my church family. As we turned in December, in December, <laughs> into summer, I was exhausted, but I felt like I had some understanding of how to do this, whatever this was. I kept my anxiety a constant companion, regularly fed. I read every news alert from the New York Times. I listened to two different political podcasts several times a week, because that will make your blood pressure better. I watched with many of you in horror as our black siblings in Christ were murdered and people protested night after night. In September, I went to Pacific City for Labor Day. It was a delight that since we were doing church from home by Zoom anyway, I could get away for a long weekend. You can imagine that clergy don't get to do that too often. My husband had to work and so he went home on Monday but since the kids were also doing school from home, we stayed. That night was one of the worst storms I've ever heard. The wind howled, it shook the windows. I could hear things blowing around. In the morning, I packed up the car while the kids were still sleeping and I doom scrolled Facebook until they woke up. A friend posted that many of the roads going east, the direction I needed to go home, were closed because of a fire that had started and spread overnight. He posted a different route to get home, and I followed that route through towns that I had never heard of, praying that we would make it home, praying that I could keep it together so that my kids did not realize how much danger we were in. As I got close to home, the sky turned brown. It got so dark that my headlights came on at 11 a.m. I unloaded the car and got everyone inside. I couldn't believe how bad it was. I checked in with my parishioners in Silverton and learned that a different fire was closing in on them and that they were at level two evacuation, which is get ready, go if you can, and be ready to go if it goes to level three. 
That fire got within eight miles of my parishioners and of our church. We spent the next several days in a dark brown haze. I offered my ash-covered house as a sanctuary for my parishioners who could not find a place to evacuate. All the hotels were full for many, many miles. Meanwhile, my husband and I had a quiet conversation about where we would put all of the people, potentially 12 of them, and whether or not we would insist on people wearing masks the whole time, because 17 people in a house can be a super spreader event very easily, but also wearing masks for days can be tiresome. In the meantime, even as I had gotten better from my spring illness, I still had a lot of trouble breathing and my chest hurt all the time. When the smoke settled in the valley, I really could not leave the house. It was terrible. I wondered after a while if this would be how I died, if I would just sit on my couch and suffocate. It was a true fear, even as I recognize how hyperreactive it sounds. When you can't get enough air, it's hard, maybe impossible, to be rational. In November, I interviewed here at Trinity in person. I was nervous as one should be, and yet it was so wonderful to spend time with people, with humans, with other people than my family. We had this bizarre dinner where we were masked, and we would unmask, take a bite, and then mask again and chew, and then unmask and take a bite. And still, it was so wonderful, so happy and hopeful, so nice to think about something other than COVID. Thanksgiving was unimaginable, only phone calls with the in-laws that we normally spend the day with. Christmas and New Year's, too. And I left my church, St. Edward's and Silverton, of 11 years with only a wave across the courtyard. It still feels surreal to have said goodbye this way. Through COVID, I worried a bit about my Korean family in Alaska. I worried about the anti-Asian rhetoric around the COVID virus. In March, when six Asian women were murdered, I became truly scared for my mom and my aunts. I worried about you too and about us as we started to come together in bigger and bigger groups. And also, my heart sighed to see this beautiful space fill little by little, feeling greater depth of prayer to be sharing it together. The Easter vigil was so beautiful, I cried. In April, I got vaccinated, but I'm still a bit nervous to take off my mask. I believe in science. I believe that I am fairly immune to COVID. And still, after being afraid for so long, I give wide berth to any unmasked stranger that I encounter. Because when you are living in trauma for so long, it's hard to not relive that trauma. It's hard to be rational 
Your brain is almost literally incapable. Do you all know the hand model of trauma? The brain? Oh, some of you do. All right, so here's a very basic, oversimplified explanation that I learned somewhat from social workers. So some of you will know this way better than I do. But here's your brainstem and your limbic system, and they control the most basic functions, right? When you sense danger, and then this is your upper, upper brain, your upper cortex. So when you sense danger, this part of your body takes over. It floods your body with adrenaline and cortisol and other hormones and raises your heart rate to get oxygen in your body so that you can outrun the bear that's trying to eat you. It chemically inhibits the muscular, vascular, digestive, and reproductive systems, as well as the frontal cortex. So it shuts down digestion, growth, sexual development, learning, and memory, and over time will shorten people's lives. As the emergency passes, your body releases hormones to stop the alarms, but that takes a while. When the cortisol and adrenaline have decreased, your upper brain is able to engage, and this is where the complex stuff happens. Fine motor skills, new memories, empathy, empathy, deeper thinking, improved decision-making, and planning. It's where touch and language and art can really flourish. My kids learned a very simple version of this in school to give them language for when they are dysregulated, when they feel out of control. So the language they learned was that when you are out of control, you flip your lid, right? You've lost your upper cortex, and now you're living here, right? And there's no um, reasoning with this part of your brain. And when you're at this part of your brain, what needs to happen is that you need to feel safe enough to re-engage your upper brain. So this is not the reason place. This is the I'm scared and running from the bear place. And kids learn this in school so that when they have reached that moment, they have a simple hand sign. I have lost, I have flipped my lid. And also so teachers can ask kids, are you here? Is this, is, is this what's happening? In all likelihood, my story has triggered some of this anxiety for you as well. Because as personal as my story is, it is our collective story right now. My experience will overlap with many of yours because we are all living together through a global trauma. Are you exhausted too? Sometimes or all the time? Many of us have spent the last year afraid for our lives, for our loved ones, livelihoods, for the life that we had before. Except we are being chased by something that we can't see until it is too late. It is all around us, or could be, in a way that a bear can't be. So we live with various amounts of adrenaline and cortisol, which is helpful when we need to run, and harmful when we live with them in, for long periods, stuck in our homes, waiting for a pandemic to pass. In Corinthians, Paul writes, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Boy, does that scripture feel different this year than it did the last time I read it. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. By faith, we have stayed home to protect ourselves, to protect others. And now, incrementally, science is saying that it is safe, if you are vaccinated, for us to all go out together again, to be at restaurants and the grocery store, maybe even for the kids to be at school. I feel this happening, and maybe you do too, that slowly my upper brain is re-engaging. The alarm bells are getting quieter, and I feel like I'm not running quite so hard from the invisible bear. Sometimes I even feel safe enough to sit with my upper brain and see some bigger thoughts happening. Sometimes I even feel rested. But I haven't put away those running shoes just yet. And because of the compounding trauma we've lived with for all this last year and a half, that's likely true for you all as well. I saw a four-panel cartoon by the Awkward Yeti this week. In the first panel, a heart is carrying a big bag called past trauma. In the next one, it is walking along and has added three more packages, bad news, pandemic, and stress. In the third panel, it comes to a very small stair, and there's a box with an arrow over it that says, minor inconvenience. In the final panel, heart is on the ground crying, and brain is standing behind it saying, I think you're overreacting. <laughs> Have you maybe overreacted in this last year or so? Small things that enraged you, long-ago anniversaries of sad events that feel so very heavy this year, peripheral losses that feel so deep. I've had so many somewhat embarrassed moments when I realize that I'm crying for events that didn't even happen to me. And I wonder, why am I so upset? Times when I feel that I don't have the right to sorrow when others lost loved ones or even their very lives, who am I to cry? This is our brains on trauma. It is deep and has been the chemical soup that we have been stewing in for a very long time. This chemical response is supposed to be a short burst to give us a chance to outrun the bear. When it goes on and on, with all our systems chemically inhibited, it breaks us down, and it is going to take a while for us to re-engage the upper brain as a culture. Paul was not talking about a pandemic, but he did promise that the love of Christ urges us on. Let us be gentle with ourselves and one another. Let's use the first grade hand model and recognize that we have flipped our lids, and more so when we are encountering somebody who has flipped theirs. Let's recognize that they're not being a jerk. They have engaged their basic brain and lost the upper one. Understand that they may not be able to calm down, 
until they feel safe again. We are making our way through. Take a deep breath when you can. And let your upper brain re-engage, remind your body that we are safe when we are. And urged on by the love of Christ, let us be patient with ourselves and one another while we get there.